from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Yeah. You know, lately, when you've been out working hard in your office, a lot of times when you come in the house, you'll say, I was working on my Mary course. Yeah. I know that's been, uh, you know, very exciting thing that you've been working on. It's actually called Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery. I get that from the website. Right. Happening in October. Uh, Yeah. So, tell us about that. For the first time, I will be offering this course in October of 2020, a five-day immersion in the mystery of this most beautiful creature, Mary, who said yes to God's wedding proposal and conceived divine life in her womb. If this is real, if this is real, if Christmas is real, then woman's womb has become the dwelling place of the Most High God. I am want to say that. Uh, I say it often, but it's it never ceases to capture my heart, my my whole being. And writing this course on Mary, I've been writing it, gosh, since uh, last April. I mm. started taking my, you know, when I'm not traveling and giving presentations and teaching courses and uh, a great deal of correspondence I need to keep up with, I have my, my writing time. I'm either mm-hmm. writing a course or writing a book or yeah. whatever. And, and for the last almost year, I've been writing this course on Mary. And writing and researching and Writing reading. and researching. What is that? There's some huge stack of books I know that oh, you've yeah. referenced. Here we, are. Here we are in my office. I yeah. can point you right to the shelf. this whole shelf. Or This is all my, my Marian library. Okay. And my research for the last year has just been going through the umpteen books that I've read on the Blessed Mother over the last mm. 25 years or so. Uh-huh. And pulling out the gems and then organizing it in a way. And there's a poem that I, I came across from St. Catherine of Siena that I'd like to share because it, it summarizes the whole experience for me of doing this research and okay. what's been kind of driving me. So, Catherine of Siena, this is a, adapted from a longer poem. This is just a shortened version of it. Mm-hmm. She says, Creator created. We just stop right there. I mean, that, that, <laughs> those two words, creator, created, takes, take us right into the heart of our faith. Yes. That the, the, the uncreated, our, our God, the one who created us, became a creature, entered into his creation. Creator created, God so humbled, enclosed in the womb of a poor young girl. Crying out, God, God, you are crazy. (laughs) These are Catherine's words, right? God, you are crazy. And with inflamed desire, I go searching for who this young woman really is. Who joined the lover to the beloved. Looking at her from her head down to her feet. So the more I look at her, the more she gives me delight. Mm. She's pregnant in appearance, and she shows me. Wow. That's, that's what's pulling me. That's what's firing me up. This, this crazy God who humbles himself to enter the womb of this girl, and I'm saying, who is this young woman? 
Who who is this God? Who who is this person who said yes to God and and how how does this all come to me? You know, like like Elizabeth, how is it that the mother of the Lord should come to me? This awe and wonder that she wants to be intimate with each and every one of us. She's our mama mm-hmm. in the spiritual realm, in the in the dimension of grace. She really and truly is our mama. More than our earthly mother is our mother. Because because this world, this this earthly reality, the natural reality is just the glimmer of the supernatural reality. And and here's this creature, she's a, a human being like the rest of us, but she has this this place in the in the other realm. She's already been taken there and she serves as our mama in the spiritual realm. She's more our mama than our than our biological mama. And unfolding these riches for others has become a great passion of mine. And and it takes us, I'll, I'll quote here Louis de Montfort, and then we can get on to um, questions of our listeners. But uh, Louis de Montfort says, It is easier to separate light from the sun than it is to separate Jesus and Mary. They are indissolubly united Christ took his flesh from this woman. We, we cannot dispense with Mary. And, and here's a, a quick way to, to sum up. Know Mary, K-N-O-W, and we will know Jesus. But know Mary, N-O, know Mary, and there's no Jesus. There's no incarnation. Uh, there would be, you know, of course, Jesus is eternal. It is the second person of the Trinity. But without Mary's body, without her, yes, we wouldn't have the word made flesh. Mm-hmm. We know him we can love him, we can taste him, we can touch him, we can encounter him, because this woman said, yes, uh, Jesus is the Savior, but Mary is the saved, and I want to know what it means to be saved, so mm. we go to Mary to know what it means to be saved, because Jesus is the Savior, but she's the saved. Mm. I can't wait to teach this course. I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. If anybody out there is interested, it's going to fill up quickly. We will announce it, I think, in... Um, June, we'll put it on the website and people can register for it. But I know it's going to fill up quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited. Can't yes, you tell? Yes, I can. I can. And I know many of your longtime students are looking forward to yeah. it also. And that's beautiful. And I just I pray that Mary herself reveals herself um, to each of the students and to you and to me more deeply through all this study because we want to know her. I want to trust her. Amen. I'm, I'm going to hold this out to, to all the husbands out there to think of, because it is true, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Mary is the perfect image of the church. So, Wendy, really and truly, you, you are the first point of communication for my heart of this Marian mystery, mm-hmm. you in your womanhood. And I want every husband out there to think about that, that through your wife, you are encountering something of this beautiful Marian mystery. And I just want to say thank you, lover, for being the woman you are and helping me to love Mary by learning to love you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like you. Thanks. May I read you a question? You may. Okay. Here's a question from a listener named Vicki. Hi, Vicki. 
She says, recently after attending Sunday Mass, I also went with my parents to attend their Lutheran service. Their pastor mentioned three to four times in his sermon that after the fall, God sees us as not good. I guess compared to like everything was good before the fall. Not good. How can I explain the truth to him in love? She also mentions that your teaching on this was key in moving, she says, my daughter and me toward the Catholic Church at the 2004 TOB conference. So this has been important in her life and wants to hear more. Wow, wow, wow. Yes, this this is a, a very important difference in Catholic and Protestant theology. Now, before, you know, making... Uh, sweeping statements, or let me put it this way, I don't want to make sweeping statements. There are Protestants who don't think this way, and there are Catholics who do think this way, but the official position of the Catholic Church and the official position of the Reformers 500 years ago diverge here. This is a very important point. What what did the fall do to human nature? Mm. The Catholic teaching is that we are fundamentally good because God made us that way. He looked at everything he made and said, behold, it's very good. And we are not more powerful than God. We cannot undo that fundamental goodness. Mm. We can twist it. We can contort it. We can distort it. We can pervert it. And that's what we've done in the fall. We are tragically fallen, but fundamentally good. Uh, We're really dealing with with the science of being here. Ontology is the fancy word, the science mm-hmm. of being, the study of being, ontology. To, to say that we are ontologically bad, that in our very being we are now bad, well, that's bad ontology <laughs> because ontology itself, the study of being, it, it, when we understand that the devil doesn't have his own clay. When we understand that the only clay that exists is God's clay, and God looked at all the clay he made and said, behold, it is very good, then we can understand that, this is a a quote from St. John Paul II in The Theology of the Body, which he gets from the fathers of the church, which comes from just sound philosophy. This comes from the philosophers that the being and the good are the same thing. The being and the good are convertible. One is the other. If it is, it is good. Mm. Now we have to have a proper understanding of what evil is. Evil does not exist in its own right. Evil is the distortion, the perversion, the twisting, the contortion of the good. Or it is the absence of a good that is meant to be there. Again, this, this principle is so fundamental Because if we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. And in particular, we get the human being wrong. So again, the the Catholic position is we are fundamentally good, but tragically fallen. The position of the first reformers, the first Protestant reformers, was, was different. They concluded that man became utterly depraved. Is man depraved? Yes, man is depraved because of sin. Is he utterly depraved? To his being. To his being, to his core. This is not even ontologically possible because we cannot, 
We, we can only twist the good. We cannot create uh, an evil world. Uh, and that's the meaning behind my expression. The devil doesn't have his own clay. And, and here our understanding of redemption is profoundly affected. Uh, if you are utterly depraved, then growing in virtue is no longer understood, as Jesus says, as distinguishing the wheat and the weeds. They grow together in our humanity. Growing in virtue means distinguishing the wheat and the weeds. But if you're utterly depraved, there's no wheat. Mm-hmm. You're all weeds. And, and dying to sin then becomes not distinguishing wheat from weeds and weeding the weeds and allowing the wheat to flourish, but it means in some way uprooting even that fundamental goodness that sin has twisted up. See, mm. redemption is not throw away the old humanity and, and give us a new one. Redemption is untwist what sin twisted. That's what it means to be redeemed. That's the new creation. The new creation does not throw away the old, right? Christ entered the old creation and came out the other side having untwisted it into the new creation. He doesn't scrap it. He doesn't do away with it. Another way of putting this is that grace builds on nature. Grace perfects nature. And nature is not inherently evil. It is fallen. It is corrupted. But it is not, it is depraved, but it is not utterly depraved. Mm. And if you're looking for biblical evidence of this, right in the beginning, it is right there in a key line. Right after the first experience of sin, the man and the woman felt shame in their nakedness. This demonstrates that they have not lost the original goodness. How so? If they were utterly depraved, they would not have felt shame because they would be behaving shamelessly, Mm -hmm. right? The reason they felt shame is because they retain that fundamental goodness, but now they realize that fundamental goodness is threatened by the corruption of their hearts, by the distortion of the original good. They still long for that original good, Mm. which is why they feel ashamed of what has become twisted. If sin brought about an utter depravity, they would not have been ashamed of their depravity. They would have been shameless Mm. in their utter depravity. The very fact that they feel ashamed in their sin is evidence that the human heart still retains a memory of that original goodness and still desires it. And it's that little spark that Christ is appealing to in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when he says, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He's appealing to that yearning that we still feel if we can clear away the debris that covers over the original goodness, if we can get down to that spark, we will feel in our hearts the resonance of Christ's call back to the beginning, back to the original plan. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, Jesus says, but from the beginning it was not so. John Paul II says, this call back to the beginning does not fall into a void. There is a place in our hearts that receives that call 
back to the beginning because we still desire it. We still desire to be loved as we were designed to be loved in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If we were utterly depraved, we would not still desire that. So that's just one one end to that question. Yeah. We could go from lots of different angles, but I, I encourage you, Vicky, to to reflect on on some of those uh, little nuggets I threw your way. Huh, they were really good nuggets. I, I can think about just in a small way, just a small example of when the gospel is preached as though we are not good in God's eyes. It can cause people to then conclude. Whatever I am attracted to or uh, feel happy about, whatever appeals to me, is also probably not good because it's not. Yes, it's not apparent right away. Well, this is an expression of God's goodness because that nothing is good, and so we kind of feel this call of the gospel to like reject. Everything, Everything about, about ourselves. ourselves, yes. And that somehow that's going to lead us to like close union with Christ rather than recognizing there is good in us and in the things that we love because that's, it is certainly possible that we love things for their fundamental goodness. And so an, a gospel being preached that calls us to recognize our creator and his higher plan that's evidenced in our goodness, in the goodness of creation. It creates that idea that we are utterly depraved, creates what John Paul II calls the interpretation of suspicion, mm. where everything about us is suspect. And here, I want to give a shout out to my sister, Emily, in heaven. Mm. Uh, we've talked about the fact in previous podcasts that my sister died last year from a two-year battle with cancer, but... Em, I know you're listening, and I want to thank you for that all-out battle that we had in the summer of 1991, I think it was. Uh, my family at the time was living in a, in a community of Christians, as you know, Wendy. This mm -hmm. is the time where you and I met that, that bought into this idea of utter depravity. Yeah. And the impact it had on people was was profoundly negative, profoundly uh, destructive. Mm. And my sister, who was a teenager at the time, absorbing this idea, she started thinking that her her love of children was suspect. Her love of playing the piano was suspect and and she needed to die to this stuff to grow in virtue that now, you know, on the one hand, could there be, you know, impurities about her love of music that could need to be purified? Certainly. But to think that your love of the good things of God is in and of itself the problem yeah. is the end result of thinking you're all weeds. And my sister, to her credit, she had to conclude, contrary to the, the false wisdom that was in the air, in a very strong way, this was very much enforced, she bucked the system at great cost to herself and said, this can't be true. This absolutely cannot be possible. There's no way God could love me if I was fundamentally evil. There's no way God could love me if I was utterly depraved. He doesn't love that which is not good. And so there must be goodness in, in, in our humanity. And at this time, this is again, summer 1991, I was kind of going with the, the flow and I had kind of bought into that false theology. 
and she and I kind of wrestled with this and battled this out. And I, and I, oh, no, no, I think, you know, that's the miracle. God loves us right in our utter depravity. No, she, and she just, she said, she insisted, and I'll never forget the look on her face. She said, it's impossible. It's impossible for the all good God to love something that is, doesn't have some goodness in it. And I want to say thank you, Em. Thank you, Em. That insistence in the summer of 1991 sent me on a journey of looking for what the Catholic Church really teaches and believes, and it helped me discover the teaching of John Paul II, and it set my whole life on a a different trajectory, and I just want to say thank you to my Mm -hmm. sister. And everybody out there, everybody out there, know this, know this in your bones. You're fundamentally good. Are you depraved? Are you broken? Are you in need of purification? Does sin go very, very deep in us? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it does. And in fact, it goes deeper than we even think. And one of the big wake-up calls we all have to face in our interior journey with the Lord is, oh, crud, I am far more broken than I want to admit. I am far more depraved than I want to acknowledge. But you are not utterly depraved at the bottom of it all. There is goodness, and our sin is not more powerful than God's creative act, which creates from love and brings into being that which is good. Sin distorts it, but it cannot erase that truth. If we stand on that foundation, we'll have a proper view of the universe, and we'll have a proper understanding of good and evil. If we're not on that foundation, we are susceptible to all kinds of errors and suspicions about existence. Mm. So thank you, Vicki. That was, that was uh, I think, some fruitful reflection based on yeah. her question. Yeah. A question from an anonymous wife. My husband and I first discovered Theology of the Body while dating and have aimed to live out the teachings throughout our 10 years of marriage. I would say that we've internalized the teachings and are passionate about the truths as we work to grow in holiness each day. We are dealing with the catch-22 of many married couples. The way we express and receive our love is just different. My husband often needs to be physically intimate to feel close, and I need to feel close to be physically intimate. But for me, I'm on guard about always to love, never to use, almost to a fault. I'm hesitant to give myself until we feel close. But with young kids, we just don't realistically always have the time or energy to reach that point, and therefore seldom reach the ability to be intimate physically either. How can I shift my mindset to be open to physical intimacy, even when I may not feel it, knowing that it ultimately is a way I am showing my husband love in the way he can receive it? I don't want to be afraid that the act is somehow letting myself be used, just because I may not be 100% emotionally in the moment. Also, my husband is very on guard never to use. It's not like he's demanding sex. It's just his love language. Wow, that is a very thoughtful question. I can tell that just as she said, she and her husband are really on the journey and and want to be on the journey. Uh, I'm sure you sense that too. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, do you, you want me to offer a little yes, reflection first, as we typically do. <laughs> I know I, I can. I know you have some wisdom here to offer, love, and this is a, this is a question particularly from the feminine heart that may demand a, a response from your feminine heart. But let me offer some 
initial reflections, you know, I just, I just want to throw this out there too. You know, we want to share from our own uh, experiences here as a married couple, and we hope what we share is is fruitful. But my gosh, there's so many different angles you could take here, and so many different words of wisdom you could share in in a short format like our podcast. I always feel like, oh man, we didn't say that, or we could have said that. But anyway, for what it's <laughs> worth, <laughs> here's what I'll share. What came to me as I was hearing you read her question, Wendy, is, and who can't relate, you know, the busyness with kids, young children especially, and how that can sap your energies. And she remarked that they don't feel like, or she doesn't feel like they have the time to gain that emotional Mm -hmm. closeness that helps her to be in a place of a readiness to experience the physical intimacy of marriage. I want to hold out this as a thought for you to consider, dear wife, anonymous wife, that, and I, I'm going to assume here that your husband is involved in, with the children, is involved in, in balancing the tasks of, of running the home, and that he's pouring himself out in his work for you and, and for the children, and when he's home, assuming he, he may work not at home and come at home, or maybe you don't work at home, it could be either way, but... In all of that, taking care of the normal duties of married life and raising children, that you are expressing in that your love for one another, and that there is in the very fulfillment of those duties, when we see that in the right light, it shouldn't cause a distance between us, but a a deeper realization, oh, how my husband, oh, how my wife loves me. I've come to see this love. I, I went through my own struggles uh, when the kids came along of, of you know, I didn't have this, the same attention from you that I had before the kids came along mm-hmm. because now we have kids. Mm-hmm. And it, I did have to go through struggles of, of letting go. And, and, and I think as I've grown, I came to see that you're pouring yourself out for our children. Is you loving me? And not in some vague way, but I'll just say it plainly. It's you loving our marital union. Mm-hmm. It's you loving my seed and the potency of my seed. The potency of my seed and the potency of our union led to these children. And you're pouring yourself out for the children I have come to see is the extension of your love for me in our union. It's your fidelity to our union. And that in times where I have felt maybe I wish I had more time, the more time uh, from you as my wife, or maybe some resentment creeping in about that, that reflection has called me back to a recognition of, no, no, she is loving me and she's loving our union in loving our children. And that has allowed me to see the daily duties of being husband and wife, as an opportunity not to put distance between us, but to, at the end of the day, to recognize you spent your whole day today loving me Mm -hmm. by loving our children. And I have tried to spend my whole day today loving you and loving our children by giving myself to providing for our family. And I have found that that has drawn us closer, those kind of recognitions. They don't need to be a point of 
division or separation, but they can be seen rightly, I think, a, a, a real point of, of intimacy that, that would lead even at the end of a tired day to say, mm-hmm. let's express and renew our covenant. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think one of the things that, you know, sometimes when you're in a situation and it just feels like a cycle that repeats itself or something, it can be hard to step back a little bit and see that you're almost like on the verge of the answer yourself, even in asking and even, the yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. And there's something beautiful about that. Yes. Maybe even writing the question kind of clarifies it. And yeah. and it, it's maybe even more for the benefit of other listeners to hear you say that, to hear your words of your question and say, oh, yeah, I feel that way, too. I'm so glad she wrote that question, you know, because I just feel like there it is. Like, oh, it's almost you're almost answering the mm-hmm. question yourself mm-hmm. in your just heartfelt, I understand that's his love language. This is my love language. We've you know, incorporated that expression of love language from a popular book, The Five Love Languages, I guess. Um, but it it's just lets us know a truth about relating as husband and wife. That's awesome to understand. Awesome. And just to take that in a little bit deeper and say like, what does that then mean that I can best express my love to you so you can receive it yes, in yes. this way? If both members of the couple are taking that in, the idea that it's going to sound silly to say take turns like you're children at a playground waiting for the slide or something. (laughs) It's not that sense, but in the more practical reality of limited time and energy in the day, to know that you're both regarding one another as your highest priority, that those times when you agree, we're going to find the opportunity to unite in our marriage covenant today. And you know it, and you've agreed there is grace in that. Whether or not all the feelings are 100% present when right. the opportunity right. is present, there's a grace in that commitment and that attention, the prioritization of the other person. Equally, when we agree, we're going to take time to really talk about what's going on in your heart, in my heart. If those two things aren't happening the same day, and we take a step back and go, my goodness, we are so blessed to have these ways that we can love one another Mm, and mm. that we have hearts that want to love one another. I think it's like, there it is. There it is. I, I know for us, we may be not the best example in that we both have those as high priorities as our love languages. So, but I just, I remember with a certain funny happiness (laughs) <laughs> when when we had a baby sleeping in our bedroom and the, we would have late night conversations in the bathroom where we were getting ready for bed, you know, but they were so precious to me yeah. and that sense of communion that was built. And similarly, when we had to find a, a different location for our union because of that baby sleeping in our bedroom or that toddler that we certainly didn't want to awaken. Right. You know, that was also prioritizing our marriage in a time when it was not so easily put high on the list, you know. So I I think I think it's 
it's all there and it's beautiful to just get it out and say, here is how it feels and it's not ideal. No, it's not. But I, I love that if you just sit with that expression, I want to love my spouse. I want him mm-hmm. to receive love. Mm-hmm. I want to receive love from him. And the beautiful gift of that desire being from the Lord and him kind of pointing the way to you of both receiving that love from one another. It's awesome. There's an act of faith that is required in learning to honor the other's love language when it is a different disposition from your own. I remember lots of tensions in our early years that came from projecting onto the other the way that I, projecting onto you the way that I think, you know, Mm -hmm. well, well, that's the way I'd want to be loved. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to love you the way I would want to be loved and realizing that's not really loving towards you, but it has taken a long time to, to, to realize that. And even still, I catch myself, I'm receiving this question as you and I are, are unfolding our thoughts on it as a challenge, just to renew my commitment to you, Wendy, to understand how to bless you and not just to project on you how I might be blessed. Yeah, well, let, it, let it be a challenge to all the couples, yeah. you know, that's that we do need to frequently look again and ask ourselves, Am I, is my heart, which deep in there does love my spouse, is that ex- being expressed and is it being in the best way that it can be received? Is that, am I taking those opportunities or learning more about it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful challenge. I, I, I want to learn more, even after all these years, I want to learn more how to Me honor too. your love language, Wendy. And when there is the commitment to that, when it's when we can talk about it and, and put it out in the light, and it sounds like this couple very much is uh, the kind of couple who talks about these things, mm-hmm. um, I think there can be, in that act of faith, trusting this is my spouse's love language, even though it's not mine. I want to reach out of myself. I want to go out of myself, out of my own comfort zone to bless my spouse. And when the spouse receives that and recognizes that gift from the other, it it, it encourages and inspires the spouse to want to make that same gift. And so it creates that mutuality in wanting to bless the other. And, And, you know, you were saying earlier about taking turns, not in the sense of kids at a slide at the park, but, but in, in that complementarity of honoring the other that yes. becomes mutually uh, enriching and a mutual blessing. And I just feel, I will share this from our experience also, that, that commitment ahead of time, that sense of both knowing we are committed, we're going to make this work out. Yes. Um, say, the day, you know, that that has been meaningful for both of us. Very meaningful. And it maybe is something that other couples needed to hear and consider that sense of communicating and acknowledging we need to plan for this in our busy lives. Yes. And, and we will, and we will keep our And plan. it's worth planning for. Yeah. And to make that renewal of your marriage covenant in the marriage bed a rightful priority because if we don't, we can get swamped with all the duties and responsibilities. And to know, for this husband, for example, to, to know the love language of his wife and be willing and ready to express that love language, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great motivator 
to know, okay, if we're if we have committed that on Wednesday night we're going to come together in our in our union, and I want my wife to respond, then I I want to learn how to love her in a way that will help her to love me. Mm-hmm. That's part of the the mutuality of that gift of self. So I would like to hold out an opportunity to our listeners, especially if you are new to the whole world of John Paul II's theology of the body and and how it how when we put these glasses on we start to see the world in new ways if if you in listening to this podcast are wondering how can I grow in an understanding of this I want to give a shout out to all our patrons thank you thank you for your ongoing support you make the work we do possible we want to continue to grow and expand this work and we can only do that with growth and expansion in our patrons so prayerfully consider becoming a monthly patron of this work. We have lots of goodies and ongoing formation for our patrons. We're so happy to be in this relationship with you and and build this community. It's really exciting. We have a community of listeners from around the world. It's really, really a blessing to, to be able to reach so many people. So thank you for being part of it. And know you are a gift, indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. And as St. John Paul II said, Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.